From time to time, people have said to me that, um, well, they'd sometimes rather skip the singing and get right to the message. Um, and it strikes me as kind of odd somewhat because for me, singing is like letting out something that's on the inside. It's like if you don't sing. For me, it's like trying to bottle up the ocean in a little tiny thimble. It just can't happen. And uh, it strikes me also how, how important singing is in the Scripture. You read through the Revelation of John and you realize almost every heavenly vision, there's singing going on. There's angels singing, the redeemed are singing, they're singing a new song, they're singing the song of the Lamb. Um, throughout many of the books of the Bible, we have poetry and songs. We have an entire book, in fact, the longest book in terms of chapters, devoted to songs. That's, that's it. Um, in fact, we are commanded and we are exhorted to sing because we have, and it's one of the distinctive marks, by the way, of the Judeo-Christian faith, is that we have something to sing about, um, that, that part of our eternal well-being will be singing, that God sings. We're told at the beginning of creation, the angels sang, and that's what we will be doing is, is singing. We're commanded. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 96. This has just caught my attention. How many times singing or the command to sing And I don't think it's something that you can do, by the way, out of obligation. It's something that releases in your heart. Where he says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. He goes on to say, and let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. And let the fields exult and everything in it. Then, and this is the part that strikes me about the the, the psalm, the poetry. It says, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. Just repeat that last line. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord. It's like this command for the heavens to sing and the earth to sing and the seas to roar and the fields to exalt and the trees, all the trees of the forest to sing before the Lord. Why, pray tell? Why in a season in which many people are experiencing intense depression, marriages are disintegrating, and money is fleeting, jobs jobs are scarce, what's there to sing about? I think the psalmist provides a pretty intense answer. Because after this machine gun of verbs to sing, 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 bless, tell, declare, be glad, rejoice, roar, exalt, and sing for joy, he gives the reason for he comes. God comes. It's this intense anticipation that God himself, maker of heaven and earth, is going to come, that launches this kind of machine gun exhortation to sing, 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 bless, tell, declare. The anticipation that God himself would come. That's what this season is about, is the fact that God did come in fulfillment of that ancient hymn. That what he looked for, what he sang about, what he called forth, heaven, earth, field, and ocean to sing about, and trees, is God's coming. We look back and 2,000 years and recognized that he did in time. He came. God came. 
And that's something to sing about. The significance of God's coming, of course, is that it culminates this relentless pursuit of love that God has been on since the beginning of time. That in many respects, the Bible is an amazing, relentless love story of a God who stops at nothing to gain his people back, to save the broken and the lost, the depressed, the hopeless, the despairing, to save them from themselves and to save them from ultimate doom of judgment. That's what the Bible is. That's what the Christmas story is, is this amazing love, is that God through the Scripture is self-giving. He gave himself by uniting himself to human flesh, taking the form of a fetus and then a newborn baby and then a boy and then a man and then a crucified man. So that on Christmas we, we celebrate God giving himself in love to be human. And at Easter, we celebrate God giving himself on the cross in our place. And at Pentecost, we celebrate God giving himself in the person of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. That is something I wish you could feel, all of us could feel, that God himself is a self-giving God who loves his people. And he calls those of us who have received that love and have recognized that you do love me, He calls us then to bear that same kind of self-giving love toward other people. Whether they're nice, generous, kind, or whether they're enemies, persecutors, or those who curse us. That he calls us to live out the same kind of love that he has poured out for us. And that love is described, as we have been looking at, in 1 Corinthians 13. In many respects, God is, or Paul is describing the love of God. It's patient and kind, but it's also a love that defines true love in the church and for Christian people. That, by the way, is why love is the defining mark of the disciple, is because it's the defining mark of the heart of the Lord himself. This is what marks that love out from every other definition of love in the, in the world. Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. I'm going to stop there. Sometimes we know the truth of, truth of something by positive definition, that is by defining what it is. But we also come to know things by defining what they are not. This last Friday, my wife said to my youngest son, Isaac, she said, Isaac, we're going to go to Home Depot, get ready. And my youngest son said, Home Depot, that's where boys are. It's not a place for mommies, it's a place for daddies. (laughs) In his mind, he has defined Home Depot as a place of men and daddies, not fit for girls, and so he then negatively defines it as women shouldn't be there. Now we, as an aside, are working on his sexist attitude. (laughs) And Paul has spent time, the first two in the list, Defining what love is. We looked at it two weeks ago. The two faces of love. Love is patient. That is, it endures all kinds of harsh things. Suffering. On the positive side, it is kind. So he is in two words, defined what love is. And now in the next five things that we're going to consider this morning, he defines what love is not and how it does not act. Namely, love it does not envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. 
And it is not self-seeking. This is what love is not. Now, as I have poured over this list of 15 things that love is and love is not, he's going to give us three other things that love is not and then conclude with four things love is or does. Um, I realize that Paul is not haphazard in this, this, this listing of what love is and what love is not. That there is a logic to his thinking. That these last five that I just mentioned, that is the envy and the boasting and the pride and the rudeness and the self-seeking, all of those find a, them, come from a common source, a common root, a common spirit that's contrary and opposite to love, namely human pride and arrogance. That is, what is envy but a manifestation of human arrogance? What is boasting but obviously a manifestation of human arrogance? What is pride but an expression of human arrogance and rudeness, a lack of sensitivity to others? It is a manifestation of human arrogance. And then the last one, self-seeking or self-centeredness. That is, they all find or come from a common source, namely human arrogance and pride. And by saying that love does not do these things, and they're giving a list of different faces of human arrogance, He's basically saying to us that human arrogance and biblical love are contraries, contrary opposites. That is, they move in opposite directions. They are mutually exclusive, uh, contradictory opposites. You cannot be an arrogant person and love. It's a categorical impossibility. If you're arrogant, you cannot love. And if you love, you will not be arrogant. They are opposites. I think of them as gravitational orientations. That is, human arrogance basically gravitationally orients everything in life, one's husband, one's children, one's job, one's degrees, one's money, all around the establishment of the self. That is, there's this gravitational pull to bring everything in life to establish a sense of worth. But the gravity is the self, the gravitational center. Biblical love reverses that. And the gravitational center is no longer the self but others, and ultimately the glory of God himself. So they move in contrary different directions, two completely different orbits. Or to use another analogy, human pride is basically a vacuum cleaner. It draws everything in for the sake of adoring and making much of the one person, namely me or I. Biblical love reverses the process and empties the self for the sake and the benefit of other people. So you see, they move in contrary directions, completely opposite. You cannot be arrogant in love, and you cannot love and be arrogant. They are opposites. And you know, it's interesting. Sometimes we think that hate is the opposite of love. But I've come to see that those two words are far more similar than we know. It's possible to love and hate the same thing. But I think Paul would... And I think a good biblical argument can be made that, that the contrast or the opposite of love is, is human arrogance. So let's just take a couple of moments just to look at these five things. And then I'm going to take a right turn um, that's not in the text, but it's in the Bible. And talk about how do you reverse the gravitational pull of the self? How do you overcome pride? Well, here are these five expressions, five faces of pride. The first one. Love does not envy. Now, when we think of envy, we typically think of somebody who has less envying somebody who has more. But the word is used earlier in the letter to talk about a spirit of competition um, where people were grouping themselves around Paul and Apollos, and some were saying, well, we're followers of Paul and we're followers of Apollos. And there was this intense sense of competition, a sense of one-upmanship, as if the Paul group is better than the Apollos group or the Jesus group is better than the Apollos group. 
That was the spirit, and that's the way the word is used in the letter. So what he's talking about isn't so much those who have less envying those who have more. Rather, he's talking about this competitive spirit that lives in us. It wants to dominate, beat, and win the next person. It can be an individual or it can be an alliance of a small group desiring to push their own particular agenda at the expense of the whole, a special interest group. And Paul is essentially saying, where there is this kind of competitive spirit in the church, there is no love. It runs contrary because the gravitational center is towards that little small interest group. It's like alliances on, on, on Survivor which are fundamentally self-serving. I will align myself with you insofar it does me good in the game. But as soon as it becomes a liability, it's gone. It's fundamentally self-serving. And Christians should have a sense about them that any time you find yourself drawn into an alliance which may benefit a part of the body but not the whole of the body, <clears throat> to avoid it and resist it at all costs because it is fundamentally, fundamentally a matter of human arrogance and divides. So why does envy or a competitive spirit, why is it opposite of love? Because ultimately it's about you. And it's not about the well-being of the whole. <coughs> Excuse me. The second one, he goes on to say, and this is the verbal form now, that love does not boast. Most of us are very familiar with boasting, and that's basically verbiage that somehow draws attention to yourself. Perhaps in Paul's day it was people who loved wisdom. After all, they were Greeks that loved wisdom, they loved theology, or perhaps it was that, hey, my gift is better than your gift. I speak in tongues, and you don't. We don't know exactly what the issue was, but the fact of the matter is the people he's addressing had no problem boasting about certain things, drawing attention to themselves. And that, too, is the opposite of love. The need to somehow make much of yourself, the need to either prove who you really are or to project who you really are not so that people will say, wow, he knows a lot, or he's articulate or he is loving or humble. That's, that's, that runs contrary to love, that kind of verbiage that draws attention to the self. And it's still very much alive. It's just most of us don't like people who brag, and so we find more subtle ways to do it. But it still happens. It's the subtle dropping a name of a respectable person, theologian, or how many books you've read. It could be a, a, a prestigious university you went to, some degrees, how much money you make. Your theological position. If any of that's done so as to draw people gravitationally into the orbit of your wonder, it's fundamentally self-serving. And you can't see beyond the clouds of your own boasting to see that anybody needs help because you're concerned about number one. Any kind of boasting, any kind of word that dribbles out of our mouth, however subtle it is, that seeks that attention is what Paul says here, contrary to love, because it's concerned about you, not others. So you have this spirit of competition, you have this verbiage that draws attention to the self, and then he goes on to the third thing to talk about pride itself. Love is not proud. And the word literally translated means to inflate. It's used in chapter 8 to talk about the fact that knowledge inflates or puffs up like a balloon. But love, he says, by contrast in chapter 8, verse 1, love builds up. You see, two different ups, you know, in knowledge. And that, by the way, that's one of the most dangerous things about education, about reading, about theology, is that it can, it can 
inflate the self so that you are no longer loving people. You're either puffing up the self, or in love you are building up others. What an amazing contrast in that verse, and that's the same word used here. The love is not proud. In other words, it's not self-inflated. Now, most of us would not say, well, I'm puffed up. I'm self-inflated. But you know, one of the true signs and evidences that you are inflated is to watch carefully how you respond to negative criticism or correction. If you are intensely defensive, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that it's because someone has taken the pin of personal criticism and begun to deflate your ego. You want to know whether you're inflated or not? Just watch carefully how you respond when your wife says something that's a little bit critical to you. You leap out of your shell. You know, it's interesting that if you're a person who's a follower of Jesus, you've denied the self, correct? Correct. At least that's what he's called us to do. You deny that part of you that wants to defend yourself. And if there is that sense of humility that really I, it's not the me that matters anymore, that's been crucified with Christ, the only me that really exists is the me that's in Jesus, then someone comes up to you with a critical comment and says, you know, that was a horrible, horrible sermon. If one has truly, in the spirit of humility, knows that the only me that matters is the me that's in Jesus, then I could say, you know, as much as it hurts my pride for me to say that or hear that, you know, you're right, it was a terrible sermon. Because it really doesn't make a difference in the end. I mean, it does make a difference if it's a terrible sermon or not, but how you feel about it. Because it's not about me, or it's not about you. So, here you have um, competitive spirit. That's a manifestation of pride. You have this um, boasting, verbiage, manifestation of pride. And you have um, uh, pride itself, or this inflation, self-inflation, where basically your shadow becomes so big you can't see anybody else. And then you have this fourth thing, that love is not rude. Rudeness is also an expression of arrogance. Rudeness is basically the exercise of power, either, either physically or verbally. To embarrass, humiliate, or shame another person, either in private or in public. Perhaps what Paul has in mind, because these five things are directly related to this ancient church. They were boasting. They were envious and had a competitive spirit. They were self-inflated. So he's dealing directly with his church, saying basically, you are not loving. And here you have this rude Perhaps in his mind, he's thinking to the issues of, of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. This is just to root the definition in the text, where apparently in that culture, for a woman to show respect to her husband, she needed to wear a covering. Again, it's a, it's a cultural expression. But it would seem from the text that some refuse to wear it and thereby embarrass and humiliate and disrespect their husbands. And that, I think Paul would say, is rude. It's unloving, unsensitive inconsiderate and love does not do that it is sensitive to the concerns and the cares of other people it's sensitive about the emotional condition of other people sensitive about the power of words love is not rude so if you are a husband who habitually berates your wife or your children either in private or public 
you are fundamentally unloving and arrogant. I know there are some who are rude to their wives. I know some of your wives are probably going, yeah, just preach it, brother. (laughs) You know, I stood in an airport last week, and I watched as a wife commanded her husband like a poodle to push his way into line to get on the plane. And I thought to myself, how utterly humiliating for that man. And I'm so glad I'm not married to that witch. That's what I was thinking. Because in that moment, is it okay? I mean, she was acting like a witch. I mean, that's what she was. In those moments, in the commanding and the ordering of her husband, she was disrespecting and humiliating his leadership in the family. The same thing can happen with the wife as the husband. And you can be rude and fundamentally unloving by ordering your husband around. Now the husbands are going, you preach it. (laughs) And the kids who speak to their parents with no sense of honor and respect, whether you're in grade school or you're in high school or you're in college. Fundamentally rude, embarrassing, humiliating for your parents. It is fundamentally unloving. Because love respects considerate, sensitive. It's not. Arrogant. Rude. And then the fifth thing, love is not self-seeking. Self-seeking, self-centered. Basically, you're at the top of your own priority list. You're at the top of the agenda. Again, I think Paul was thinking of particular issues going on in this church in which At the Lord's Supper, the rich people would bring all their great food, and the poor people who didn't have anything were left to starve. As if they were seeking their own, to feed their own faces before they cared for the needs of the poor. Love, he says, is not fundamentally you first. It isn't. It provides for the needs of others first. So what they're doing in that time is fundamentally unloving, and arrogant, and proud. So if you're the kind of husband, and I seem to be using marriage a lot because, you know what? We're having, I think, an unprecedented number of marriages deteriorate in our family, church family. If you're the kind of husband who buys a brand new car and gives the keys to your old car to your wife for no other reason, for no other reason that you want the smell of the fresh new leather and you want to drive the new car, you are fundamentally self-seeking and therefore unloving. And that's not just true of individuals. That can happen on the wife's part. It can happen on the part of generational differences or style differences. Again, I have been raised and experienced in church ministry, groups of people that have aligned themselves to have their own private interests fulfilled in the style and selection of the music that you sing. Without regard to the whole, without regard to the old or the younger or those who are new and those who are traditional. And that is... That kind of self-seeking, a self-interest group in the church is fundamentally unloving. And it says to the world, you got the same kind of problems we do. When Paul's saying, actually the reverse is, is the issue. God himself had a preference to stay God. In one sense he did. But we learned that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he humbled himself, taking the form of a slave and died on a cross willing to give up his preference for the sake of you and I. 
But he is the model of someone who has little self-interest and came to be one of us, die as a substitute for us. So here you have these, these different faces of love, or faces of pride, the opposite of love. You have envy, or the, that competitive spirit, and you have boasting, and you have arrogance, or inflation, self-inflation, and you have this thing called rudeness and self-seeking. Now my guess is that every one of us, if we were to be perfectly honest, could say, you know what, that one fits me, and this one over here fits me. That if we were to be honest, we'd say, you know, I'm probably a pretty rude person. I know I am. I'm, I'm fairly aware of most of the things that I struggle with. And some of you probably go, yep, yeah, <laughs> I boast. I drop names all the time. Most of us, however, dismiss our own pride and tend to obsess over the pride, prideful face of other people, not realize it for what it is. Whatever mask or face of pride you wear in your life is fundamentally unloving. It runs contrary to biblical love and doesn't really care about the other person. And if you don't know, if you don't know which face of pride shows itself in your life, I dare you, when you get in the car after the service, ask your wife and your kids or ask your husband or a close friend. Say, take a big deep breath. Say, how do you see pride and arrogance manifesting itself in my life? And when they say something, watch how you respond. Don't get defensive because that right there will tell you that you're fundamentally proud. And you'll discover it the hard way. And for those of you who are asked, to be honest. So in those awkward moments in the car when you're sitting there, sweetheart... I just pray to show itself in my life, and your wife has the courage to say, Sweetheart, you talk about how much money you make way too much. And take it. And recognize, wow, this is an area of unlove in which I'm drawing attention to myself. So here you have different faces of pride, and every one of us struggles in some way or another with one or more of them, if not maybe all of them. But the other question is, and here I'm going to take a right turn, How do you recover from that? Like, how is it that I can alter my life so that there's this this gravitational center isn't on me? How can I stop being rude? And how can I stop boasting and dropping names? And how can I stop being self-seeking and arrogant? I mean, is it just by deciding I'm not going to be as rude tomorrow as I was today? Is it to say, you know what? I'm not going to have a competitive spirit that I had yesterday. Is it just to decide yourself I'm not going to do this anymore? Well, in one sense, I hope you do see it as wrong, and I hope you make efforts to to not be rude to your husband or wife to your kids or to be self-seeking. I do, but, but the reason you're doing those things is because you're gravitationally trying to fill something that's void. A sense of emptiness or perhaps uh, what I think is an instinctive sense of unworthiness in every one of us. And we grab hold of things and we search out things, taking on careers or or marrying somebody who's beautiful, thinking that will give me a sense of arrival. It will give me a sense of importance and sense of value. And so we, we crave, we scratch, and we, we fill this void. But then when someone comes along who's better than we are, all of a sudden we find our, this void open up again. You find yourself intensely insecure. 
And it's great when you're the best teacher in the school. But when someone comes along who's better than you, all of a sudden you feel insecure. Why is that? Because your worth is tied to what you do, the position you hold, how well you perform. And as soon as that's taken away or somebody's better, then all of a sudden there's a sense of unworth. Then you find yourself scratching again. Trying to fill this. That's why the gravity orients to the self. You're trying to satisfy, fill, and trying to establish a worth or value that's not there. And the truth of the matter is no matter how much you throw in to that center, it will always be a bottomless black hole. Always. You're a husband or a wife, and you are trying to satisfy your needs from your husband alone. He cannot sustain that black hole, and it will devastate your marriage. And it's not until that black hole is filled and satisfied that you'll find yourself no longer craving, and the, and, and, and the gravitational center will shift. So what is it that fills the void, that black hole of the self, that it feels a sense of unworthiness that keeps you boasting, trying to project something that's not real, feel better about yourself, or seeking things first, putting yourself on the top of the agenda? And here's what I think it is. This is the only thing that satisfies the human heart to the point where you begin to care more about others than yourself. And it is... It is the love of God shown to us in Jesus. That is, when you come to a place that you begin to get beyond the theory of love or the history of Christ died for me in love to the realization that I know his love and it becomes the Gibraltar of your life, the Grand Teton of your life so that it becomes that sense of of security, well, then the gravitational center will shift. To know, to know deeply that while I was yet a sinner and unworthy and flawed and imperfect, God loved me anyway to the point of covering all my shame and giving me himself. When we come to that realization that you find security in God's love and you are satisfied with God's love, then what other people think of you is going to be irrelevant because you will know God loves me. And that love is a steadfast love. It is unfailing love. No matter where I go, I have his love. If I mess up, I still have his love. Why? Because his love is irrevocable. Nothing can separate us from separate me from his love no matter where I go. I make my bed and sheol. Behold, his love is still there with me. To be confident in that and to know that. Well, then you're not scrap, scraping any longer to fill that emptiness because it's filled. And not because you have won his affection. Not because you've been a good kid or a good person. That's again trying to fill the empty hole with your own works. But to know He loved you in spite of you. That allows one to live not only in security, with satisfaction, but to live in freedom. And only in that freedom will you find the strength then and the compulsion and the overflow to actually help other people.
Because you rest secure. I'm telling you, no career, no job, no money, no spouse will ever fill that. The only thing that can is the love of God in Christ made powerfully true and realized in our life by the Spirit of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, blah, 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 blah. All this talk about the love of God satisfying the soul. Yeah, it really doesn't work. It's because you haven't tasted it yet, perhaps. Or maybe you haven't cried out with Moses in one of the other Psalms. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. As if each morning he needed to be satisfied with the fact that God loves him as he is before he could live his day. Or that David could say, you know what, your loving kindness, it's better than life. Everything everybody else is searching for to try and fill that black hole, oh, you are so much better than that. When that happens, the world doesn't really matter all that much. And the brand new car doesn't matter all that much anymore because his love is better than life. It does work. You know, it even works by way of analogy in our lives. There's this little girl who is, uh, comes to our house, has been coming for about the last five years. And she, when I first met her, she was just such a confident and extroverted person. Just a joy to be around. And, and over the last year or so, I've noticed a tremendous transition and shift in her life. Now when I see her, I see somebody who's very insecure. Somebody who's very needy. And I didn't have a clue what was the difference between the confident, secure, extroverted young girl and the one who had now become insecure and very needy until I found out that her mother and father split up. And I firmly believe that both her mother and father still love her. But when a mother leaves a father and a father leaves a mother, it says to the child that love is breakable. And therefore they begin to distrust even the love of a mother or father. Just goes to show you how much love provides security, both for our kids, but more importantly, and this is what no human love can do, it is God's irrevocable, unconditional, unfailing, steadfast love for us that if we're confident in, we find security and we find satisfaction. If you want to know how to reverse how to not love in ways that are rude, envious, boastful, then pray with Moses each morning and seek with all of your heart. Satisfy me, O Lord, each morning with your unsearchable, steadfast love. To experience with David, your love is better than life. And to echo with Paul, while I was yet a sinner, you died for me because you love me. God makes that real in your life and you're confident of that. You'll see your pride deflate because it's His love that will give you your sense of self. Not what you do. Not the words that you boast. Not the projections. And it is my hope um, if you were to have one prayer this Advent season, say, Lord, will you satisfy me with your love that you've shown in Jesus? Will you satisfy me? Will you secure my soul in your love. If you do that this Advent season and God's love is poured out on you, brother or sister, you will then learn how to love other people because your life will be full and it will be overflowing. And then 
Then you'll understand the psalmist when he says, Sing to the Lord. New song. Sing to the Lord. All the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar. Let the fields exult. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. I pray that that would be your prayer, and I pray you find security not in other people or things or performance, but in the love of Christ. Will you spend just a couple of moments just praying that prayer even now? Satisfy me, O Lord, with your loving kindness. Satisfy me with your loving kindness.